It's Friday, February 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It was a hoax. Empire actor Jesse Smollett is now being accused of staging a homophobic and racist attack against himself in an attempt to raise his profile because he was angry at the salary he was making. Prosecutors say the actor gave detailed instructions for the fake attack. Amr Madhani, national correspondent at USA Today, was in court for the bond hearing and fills us in on the details. Next, an odd story of a failed domestic terror plot. Lieutenant Christopher Paul Hassan, who was a Coast Guard officer and a self-described white nationalist, was plotting to kill a long list of prominent journalists and Democratic politicians. Claudia Kerner, BuzzFeed News reporter, joins us for more on this extreme domestic terror plot. Finally, Samsung has unveiled the Galaxy Fold. It's the latest smartphone offering that boasts an Infinity Flex display that allows the phone to have a tablet-sized screen that can be folded to fit in your pocket. It can run three apps at once and costs you $2,000. Rob Verger, assistant tech editor at Popular Science, joins us to discuss whether this foldable phone will be the next thing you buy. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Smollett paid $3,500 to stage this attack and drag Chicago's reputation through the mud in the process. And why? The stunt was orchestrated by Smollett because he was dissatisfied with his salary. Joining us now is Amir Madhani, national correspondent for USA Today. In less than a month, Jesse Smollett changed from being a victim of a hate crime to being accused of fabricating the entire thing. He could be facing up to three years in prison for this. This case had so many twists and turns. There was people skeptical from the beginning. There was a lot of people that were in his corner, a lot of elected officials, uh, contenders for the Democratic nomination uh, coming to his support. And everything fell apart on him now. Uh, he was in court. He's been charged. What are the charges and how was it in court? You were there to witness the whole thing. Right. The charges for disorderly conduct by filing a false police report. That's what he did. You know, that's essentially the crime. Right. He told what the police and prosecutors are alleging is that this is just this outlandish hoax and that he sought out to make himself look like the victim of this terrible, brutal, anti-black, homophobic crime. And he went to these extraordinary pains, to, according to the prosecutors, to stage this attack. He, uh, these two brothers that he recruited that he was friendly with, he gave them specific instructions on how he wanted that story to be beaten. Yeah. He gave them money to even go buy the supplies, like the ski mask and the red hat that is supposed to look like the Trump MAGA hat that one of them wore. And they even, like, beforehand went and staked out the spot where he wanted the attack to take place. And a lot of that, it seems, has to do with how the camera angles were. Yeah, exactly. And that was an important part for them. They wanted to make sure it was caught on camera. The camera angle was facing the wrong way. So that falls apart on, on their end. He's out on bail now. In the courtroom, did he show any remorse? Did he look like he was concerned about anything? Yeah, so it was it was remarkable 
to me as I was sort of furiously typing away and then looking up from time to time. One, this, uh, the proffer where they sort of detail the charges. You know, usually even in a heater case, you'll get uh, the state's attorney maybe going a page, four or five minutes and detailing what they have. This proffer, when it's typed out, is four pages, single-spaced. It took the assistant state's attorney, uh, Lanier, nearly 16 minutes to get through it. He looked at her. He was watching her. And as I kept looking back up to him, he, you know, his face was right on her. But at moments, as she was, she was detailing what to those in the court was just extraordinarily outlandish and, and almost crazy sounding as we listened to it. You could see uh, the motion in his face. You could see, you know, his, his mouth fell slightly agape at times as she was drawing out in just great detail the case that prosecutors and police were presenting. Chicago Police Superintendent Eddie Johnson went up there and said that he Smollett paid the two brothers 3500 bucks to stage the attack, and it was all because he was dissatisfied with the salary at his work. So this was just kind of an effort to raise his profile. Let's hear this quick clip of Eddie Johnson talking about the intense attention that was given to this case. Anytime a hate crime is reported in the city of Chicago, it gets the same attention. This didn't get any special attention. You all gave this more attention uh, specifically than we do. We give every hate crime in this city the same amount of vigor because there's no place for hatred in this city. There was a lot of stuff being made about how much, how many resources they were throwing at this. And, you know, it had a celebrity. It had all the stuff that goes into a big sensational story. But they said that, you know, they didn't let anything else slip up underneath this investigation. So it was painstaking detective work that really led us to this conclusion. A couple of things. One, yes. You know, like I think it's, uh, it's pretty extraordinary how they put this case together, basically using more than 50 cameras, 35 police cameras, 20 privately owned cameras to sort of piece together these guys' movement and then to get to a point where, you know, they could pulling it back where they were able to catch that these guys were in a rideshare at one point and being able to find that rideshare driver and get the warrants to find out the information of who are these two brothers? That itself is sort of astounding and also just perhaps a, a little bit interesting to reflect on just how many cameras are in our yeah. cities these days. But there's also the sense, I think, if particularly for this city, that one has an enormous amount of crime, an enormous amount of violence, but also an extraordinary amount of distrust of the police, a lot of it well-earned from the Black and Latino communities, that all falls into this backdrop. And they took this case seriously from the beginning, also because this was high profile, but also if they hadn't handled it properly and they had messed it up, it would have been an avalanche of problems for Eddie Johnson and for the mayor. The last thing I want to focus on is uh, the motive. We still don't know. There won't be full closure until we get some type of statement from Jesse Smollett himself, like either owning up to it or mounting some type of defense to this. I wanted to replay this clip from the interview he did with Robin Roberts and then make an observation after that. I want that video found so badly. Number one, I want them to find the people that did it. Number two, I want them to stop being able to say alleged attack. Number three, I want them to see that I fought back and I want a little gay boy who might watch this to see that I fought back. And it does not take anything away from people that are not able to do that. But I fought back. They ran off. I didn't. 
you know, they're saying that the motivation was he was dissatisfied with his salary, but hearing that, it, you know, you, it also makes it feel like that camera angle that didn't pan out for him was so important. He wanted to prop himself up as a hero, and we know he's outspoken against the president. He's a, an LGBTQ activist. He wanted to prop himself up as a hero, and everything fell apart on him, and it really just, uh, it's a slap in the face to all the stuff he purportedly stands for. I, I can't argue with that. I think, you know, after rehearing I, that quote from the Good Morning America interview, what also came out was prosecutor saying that he basically told these guys, beat me up, but don't beat me too bad and make it so I can fight back. And that really juxtaposes against that quote of I fought back. What's the next step? When is he in court again? He's, he's done uh, due in court for a little while, not until March. He hasn't been indicted yet. I would not be surprised if that comes um, sooner than later. So that that could be the next shoe to drop. And there's also the possibility, though it's uh, it seems increasingly more narrow, that the feds might get involved because there's a belief that he mailed this false letter. And so right. he used the U.S. Postal Service. So that's still a possibility out there. It might not come to fruition. And that's how it all started with him sending that letter. Amir Madhani, a national correspondent for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Prosecutors provided a weapon update. What they found, it includes semi-automatic rifles. He also was stockpiling steroids and opioid that prosecutors believe he may have wanted to make himself less susceptible to injury in any attack. Joining us now is Claudia Kerner, BuzzFeed News reporter. We're going to be talking about this crazy story about a Coast Guard officer who was accused of plotting a white supremacist terror attack. He was a lieutenant Coast Guard. He stockpiled tons of weapons and ammunition. They found all that stuff at his Maryland home. There was this plot to assassinate prominent Democratic lawmakers, members of the media. It was so crazy that the prosecutor said that the defendant intends to murder innocent civilians on a scale rarely seen in this country. What do we know about this suspect? He is a lieutenant with the Coast Guard, and he has a history also serving in the Marines and National Guard before that. He's 49 years old, and he is based in Washington, D.C. What do we know about the charges against him? I mean, I've seen all sorts of stuff. They say he is a declared white supremacist. They have the list of the people that he was going to be targeting. What do we know about all that? Well, so he was arrested last week on drug and weapons charges, nothing too out of the ordinary. But then as prosecutors have come to the judge to ask that he not be released on bail, they've started revealing more of their investigation into his extremist views and his plans to kill people. So the judge is saying, listen, if this is what's going on, you should bring charges that reflect what you found, and there will be another hearing in a couple of weeks based on potential charges related to the domestic terror plot. Let's talk about the things that they did seize from his home then. I know it was a range of guns and I think like a thousand rounds of ammunition. Prosecutors provided a weapon update. What they found, it includes semi-automatic rifles. He also was stockpiling steroids and opioid that prosecutors believe he may have wanted to make himself less susceptible to injury in any attack. This is something, and this is part of the whole oddness of this thing. He was allegedly researching the manifesto by the Norwegian mass shooter Anders Breivik, who wrote about some of this stuff to uh, prepare yourself. 
And he was taking some of those teachings and folding it into whatever motives he was gaining to carry out these attacks. That's right. He shared some of those same extremist views that liberalism, multiculturalism were an attack on white people and white people needed to revolt to create their own homeland to protect their culture. And he believed the only way that could happen would be through mass violence. And then let's talk about some of the uh, targets that he had. Uh, he was working on his work computer right away. That's easy to obtain the info from there. But he was making some type of spreadsheet with names and all of his targets. We've got Excel spreadsheet that looks like a hit list. And it includes some really prominent Democratic lawmakers, Nancy Pelosi, Elizabeth Warren, and then also media figures such as MSNBC anchor Chris Hayes, CNN Sam Jones, and Don Lemon. So based on the Brevik manifesto, he seems to have been trying to get people who were famous for believing in liberal ideals and in multiculturalism. They have this uh, letter that he drafted to friends from 2017 where he talks about how he's dreaming of a way to kill almost every last person on earth and he's not sure of the most successful way to do it. He thinks a plague would work, but he needs Spanish flu or botulism or anthrax. And he's like, I'm not sure yet, but I'll find something. I mean, these are pretty outrageous things that he was writing and posting up to certain people. So his stuff is out there and it's just going to be curious to see where the tip off came from. Definitely. We don't know much about his family at this point. We know that he doesn't have a criminal history, but obviously he'd been under investigation for more than just those drugs and weapons charges. How long had he been in the military? Because this is another thing. I mean, you're operating with a lot of different people and it, it's just weird to see that some uh, other slip up hadn't happened before if he was such an avowed white supremacist. He's 49 years old and he had a long military career beginning in the Marines and then also serving for several years in the Army National Guard. I've checked in with those branches of service. They haven't released anything that would suggest he caused problems while he was serving. But again, we don't know for sure yet. Is there anything that has come out from his defense team or any possible denial of any of this stuff? His defense team says that prosecutors are really just blowing this all out of proportion, that he doesn't have a criminal history, so there's no reason to believe that he was actually planning this kind of large-scale violent attack. Wow. I mean, it's an odd story, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more of it pretty soon. Claudia Kerner, BuzzFeed News reporter, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. With the Galaxy Fold, you get a powerful smartphone and a revolutionary tablet, all in a single premium package. When it's folded, it's compact and perfectly portable. But when the device opens up, your world does too. Joining us now is Rob Verger, assistant tech editor at Popular Science. Samsung just had their big conference where they revealed the next generation of their Galaxy S smartphones. There's a lot of cool stuff in there, a lot of Obviously, uh, multiple cameras, there's huge displays. They have this thing called an ultrasonic fingerprint sensor. And then the other big thing that they unveiled was their Galaxy Fold phone, which is basically like a fold-up phone, and then you unfold it, and it's like a tablet. Let's start with the regular Galaxy uh, phones and uh, what's new with them, and talk about this fingerprint sensor also. We got a whole bunch of new gadgets from Samsung on Wednesday, and they revealed their new S10, Galaxy S10 phones, and there's actually four of those, so we got a whole slew of new S10 devices, and three of the four of them have this ultrasonic fingerprint sensor that's built right into the display, and it uses sound waves to look at your fingerprint and get a kind of three 
three-dimensional image of it and uses that to basically validate your identity and give you a way to unlock the phone. And it's a really clever way of using biometrics. You know, all smartphone makers have to figure out how do we let somebody unlock the phone? You know, right. maybe it's Apple uses Face ID, for example. Obviously, fingerprint sensors aren't new on phones, but an ultrasonic fingerprint sensor built into the display is, I think, a pretty cool new trick. I have an iPhone 10 right now, and it does have the facial recognition thing. It works pretty good, but I always do miss that fingerprint sensor. Uh, it's just easy to open it real quick. You know, if you're, as you're holding and picking up your phone, it's already on its way to being open. You know, Samsung always makes beautiful phones, beautiful displays. They're great phones, but briefly tell us how the ultrasonic fingerprint sensor works. It uses sound waves to detect the three-dimensional image of your fingerprint. Right. Well, you've probably heard of like an ultrasound in medicine, right? Which right. is using sound waves to get an image of something. So they're doing something similar. Obviously, it's going to vary in some technical ways, but it's using sound waves that you can't hear. So they're ultrasonic. And those sound waves are bouncing off of your fingerprint and returning to the sensor. So it's kind of doing an, it's getting an active reading of what your fingerprint is. And that's different from like a capacitive fingerprint sensor, which is like what was built into the home buttons of older Apple iPhones. So it's using these sound waves to bounce off of your fingerprint. And from that, it's looking at the ridges and the valleys, and it can sense the depth of the valleys as well. So that lets it get a three-dimensional or textured look at your fingerprint to validate it that way. How much are these phones going to cost us? They're all around $900, $1,000, which is pretty par for the course for yeah. flagship smartphone these days. All right, let's talk about the next one that they unveiled also, the Galaxy Fold phone, which... A lot of people are saying you're going to start seeing more of these foldable type displays. This one does come at a price at $1,980, so basically $2,000. And it's going to be available starting April 26th, so that's pretty soon. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, it seems pretty science fiction-y, and it's kind of exciting. But you're right, it is almost $2,000. It's funny because my guess is that most consumers who buy Samsung products will go out and buy something like the S10, kind of your normal kind of smartphone. But the Galaxy Fold got all this attention, and that's because it can fold open like a book. And when it does, it reveals this screen that's like a tablet-sized screen. It's about 7.3 inches across. When you close it like a book, on the front of it is a smaller screen that's 4.6 inches across. So they're really aiming this as a luxury device that some people will use as a phone, and then later on, you're at home, you're on your couch, and you unfold it and use it as a tablet to consume Netflix or, or whatever. Yeah, this thing is so interesting, and I understand the purpose of it. I don't know if the consumer at large is ready for something like this. The display you were talking about in the front, it's not as nice as some of the other uh, smartphones out there, even the S10s or the iPhones. It almost seems like uh, you're going to be looking at it for notifications like you would like on an Apple Watch or something. And then you open the display and yes, then it does look mo much more impressive. Tell us about that screen there, because since it's a foldable display, I've read somewhere that it doesn't completely lay flat when you open it. They say that it's able to fold uh, at least 200,000 times, which works out to over five years if you fold it a hundred times a day. The interesting thing will be, you know, a couple things. One will be to see how does this phone hold up over time? You know, right. how do the gears work? How does that phone, you know, the screen that they say is made out of a new kind of polymer, how does that hold up over time with all this kind of this, this new use case, right? So one is, you know, how does it hold up physically? And I think the other question is, what's it like to use? It can run up to three apps at a time. And I like so that. that. Means, yeah, so you can multitask, you know, you can have a, a YouTube video open, you can have WhatsApp on, and, you know, a third app. And some people may love that, and they're like, this is so fun, I'm being so productive. 
And other people might think, God, this is like overwhelming. I don't know which screen to put where and whether I should just close it and use the small screen. So some people may find a freedom in using it. They're like, wow, this is the future. And I think other people may think this just this phone is just a little bit much for me. Rob Verger, assistant tech editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.